It is a, a privilege and a pleasure to be your pastor or one of your pastors. So thank you. And I'm excited also to be your tour guide today as we continue our journey, as we travel back to the first century Asia Minor and continue our journey uh, through the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. And if you've been with us, you already know that near the end of the first century, Christians were fa- facing mounting opposition to the, um, from the Roman Empire because of their faith in one God instead of many gods. That faith, that exclusive faith, clashed with first century Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture, which, which expected the worship of many gods. Um, this exclusive faith got many early Christians into trouble, including the Apostle John, who as an elderly man was exiled to the island of Patmos. And while John was imprisoned in Patmos, Jesus appeared to him in a vision, and, we, and, and through John wanted to send a message to the early church, a message that today is what we know as the book of Revelation. But to the first century uh, churches in nearby Asia Minor, it was a very personal letter of hope and challenge. But because this was a circular letter, each of these churches got to read each other's mail, so to speak, and we get to read it too. So the past few weeks, we've been tracing, John, tracing John's message from Jesus along a first century mail route that started in the seaport city of Ephesus. That's likely the first place where John's letter landed, fresh off a boat from Patmos. From Ephesus, we traveled to Smyrna. From Smyrna, we traveled last week to Pergamum. Well, this morning, we start making our way back south, get to travel 40 miles southeast to the next town along the mail route. Say it with me. Thyatira, Thyatira. We'll go with Thyatira, okay? Thyatira. And if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read our text of scripture today, read this letter from Jesus. And like we did last week, as we read, I'd like you to pretend that you're a church member in first century Thyatira, Okay. You're gathering with your fellow believers, most likely in a home, probably wasn't a big church, most likely in a home, and and you're eager to hear what Jesus has to say to you. This is a big deal, okay? So, Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Well done. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, time out. How are you feeling right now? How are you feeling right now? You just heard a direct message from Jesus himself to you. And there were some encouraging words, but there's some pretty stern stuff in there too, right? Striking children dead? What's that all about? For now, you may be seated. We'll get to that. But I'd like to start out by focusing on one word near the beginning of the letter in verse 20 that jumped off the page to me as I read it. It's a word um, that makes this letter to Thyatira very important for us to listen to because this word has particular relevance for our 21st century context. That's the word tolerance, tolerance. You know, if we could give these first century churches nicknames, Ephesus could be labeled the unloving church. Smyrna could be labeled the persecuted church. Pergamum that we looked at last week could be called the compromising church. Thyatira could get the nickname the tolerant church. And since tolerance is one of the highest virtues in our 21st century American culture, it's going to be very important for us to listen to these words from Jesus because they're going to be applicable to us as well. Now, tolerance, let me just start out by saying this. Tolerance can be a very good thing, a commendable thing. There's a kind of tolerance in society in the civic arena that allows people with different beliefs to live together in peace, to respect each other as humans. In the public square, we as Christians should advocate for this kind of tolerance where people are treated fairly, with dignity, without discrimination, where people have the right to hold their beliefs in such a way to be able to disagree with each other with mutual kindness and respect. That's the definition of true and good tolerance. But there's a different kind of tolerance that isn't actually very tolerant that's becoming quite prevalent in our culture. Have you noticed that our culture is becoming increasingly intolerant of those who hold to absolute truth and a God-given moral code? There's an inherent intolerance in our culture's version of tolerance. Today, tolerance has been increasingly redefined as giving unqualified affirmation to everything. Our culture has mistakenly equated love with unconditional affirmation, and the two are not the same. But the bottom line is that we Christians cannot be affirming of all things because God is not affirming of all things. For instance, God is not tolerant of immorality. He's not patient with what is false. Should we as Christians respect each other? Should should we respect others when they disagree with us? Yes. Should we love them, try to understand them, believe the best about their motives? Absolutely. That's being truly tolerant. But as Jesus followers, we cannot give unqualified, unconditional affirmation to every belief and behavior because that would be inherently unloving. And we are called by God to more than tolerance. We're called to love, to love above all else. Parents, you of all people should understand this. 
You are not a good and loving parent if you give unqualified, unconditional affirmation to every behavior that you see in your child, right? If your toddler is making a beeline towards an electrical socket with a fork to plug it in, you don't go, oh, no, no, wait, we need to let her grow up to learn how to think for herself. No, no. If your child is going into a busy intersection to play because they want to, you don't go, who am I to judge? No, those behaviors are detrimental to life. And so you as a good and loving parent step in and you are non-affirming of those behaviors. God created us. He knows what's best for us. He put things off limit for us, not because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy, some intolerant bigot. No, he calls things sin that are off limits and off limits that are destructive to our lives, to our own well-being. So in displaying healthy tolerance, we must love what God loves, but we must also reject what God rejects. We must call sin what God calls sin. Sin. Loving what God loves is where the church in Ephesus failed. But tolerating tolerating what God does not tolerate is where this church in Thyatira was going off the rails. Some early Christians in Thyatira were were giving unqualified, unconditional affirmation to behaviors that God puts off limits and calls sin. So how do we, in our tolerant preaching 21st century culture, avoid this very same failure? How do we stay away from this, I guess, compromise, both personally and corporately as a church? It's a good question. Glad you asked it. So let's jump in. As we travel to Thyatira today, as your tour guide, I'd like to start off by giving you a little historical background because it's going to help us understand some of the things that are going on in the text, kind of like last week except not as in-depth, because we don't know as much about Thyatira. Thyatira was the smallest and least important town of these seven cities that Jesus addresses in Asia Minor. Very little of the ancient city of Thyatira still, still exists, but if you were to travel to the modern Turkish city of Akasar, I, I think I'm saying that right, Akasar, it's A-K-H-I-S-A-R, look it up on Google Maps, you will find the ancient ruins of Thyatira right smack dab in the middle of town. And although ancient Thyatira was a smaller town and nowhere near the grandeur of a city like Pergamum like that we looked at last week, we, must as- we mustn't assume that small means unimportant, that small means unworthy of careful attention because Jesus devotes the most words to this church, to this city. Among all the seven letters, this is the longest. Thyatira was initially founded as a military outpost by Alexander the Great. And the Greek soldiers that were stationed, first stationed there worshipped um, the god Apollo. Now, they believed that Apollo took care of them. They believed that he provided for their well-being, helped them win battles. And so Apollo naturally became the patron god of Thyatira. In Greek mythology, Apollo was the son of Zeus. We talked about Zeus last week as being the most powerful god in the Greek pantheon of gods. And so, because Apollo was the son of Zeus, he was given a nickname. Any guesses as to what he was called? He was called the son of God. 
Now, this is precisely why Jesus starts out his letter to this church by saying, let's read verse 18 again. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira writes the words of who? The son of God, the real son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Right out of the gate, in his message to, this, to the church in Thyatira, Jesus confronts their town's patron God, small g God. He confronts the notion that Apollo is the quote unquote son of God. No, he's the real son of God. I'm the real son of God, Jesus says. So listen up. Now, now, why does Jesus go on to mention that he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze? That sounds kind of strange. Well, it likely means that his flaming eyes see everything that was going on in Thyatira. And that his burnished bronze feet are unmovable in his stance on things. In other words, Jesus is not a wishy-washy deity that gives unqualified, unconditional affirmation to everything that was going on in Thyatira. But the use of this fire and bronze imagery by Jesus here is very, very clever because it relates to their culture, their, what was going on in the industry in their city. Because flaming fires and burnished bronze were reference points to the industries in Thyatira. The kiln fires there produced pottery that was coveted throughout the ancient world. And Thyatira's bronze smiths and blacksmiths, their metal workers were famous for their metalwork. On a side note, the town was also known for its textiles. And the soil and water around Thyatira was very rich in minerals. And it was so rich that no one else in the ancient world could make a brilliant red dye or a brilliant purple dye to dye fabrics like Thyatira could. And so their textiles were coveted around the world. In fact, if you're familiar with the, the book of Acts, one of the first converts to Christianity in Europe was a lady named Lydia who encountered Paul in the Greek city of Philippi. Lydia was a seller of purple. That was her vocation. Most likely, um, she uh, was kind of a, a trade representative. Does anybody know the text well enough to know where she was from? It's a small town in Asia Minor, begins with a T, ends in Thyatira. <laughs> Thyatira. She is from Thyatira. And so she's sort of the, um, the exporter, shall you say, of the textiles from her hometown there in Europe. So Thyatira was primarily a blue-collar town. And the early church members in Thyatira would have found their livelihoods in all these various industries. They were potters, metal workers, textile makers. But here's what else you need to know about Thyatira. All these various trades were organized into guilds. To be gainfully employed in Thyatira, you had to be a member of one of the trade guilds, the Potter's Guild, the Bronze Maker's Guild, the Textile Producer's Guild, and so on. They were sort of like what we have as modern-day labor unions, except with one major difference. Today, labor unions primarily operate in the area of vocation and politics, but, we'll, um, but in the area of vocation. But in Thyatira, your entire social and religious life was wrapped up together in your trade guild as well. And periodically, each trade guild would hold big festivals for all their guild members. The problem for Christians was that in Thyatira, that these festivals were held in the temple to Apollo who was the patron god of the guilds, just like he was the patron god to the soldiers who founded the town. 
And at these grand guild feasts, they would make meat offerings to Apollo as their provider, their protector of their various craft. And then they would immediately use that same meat to then have a worship feast in honor of Apollo, celebrating him as their patron god. Most people would get drunk, and then things would devolve from there into a frat party of sorts with sexual promiscuity being the norm. But if you, as a first century Christian, trying to be faithful to Christ, would say, you know, I'm not going to the bronze maker's guild feast. Perhaps you're a bronze maker. And you say, no, I'm, I'm going to sit this one out. You would put the entire success of the guild at risk because the common opinion among your coworkers would be that your non-participation might anger your patron god. And since he was the patron god of your guild, the one providing for your guild's economic success, good trade deals around the world, your non-participation will put the entire bronzesmith's trade guild in jeopardy of losing Apollo's favor. And so this left the guilds with only one option. If you didn't show up to the party, they would expel you from the guild. In other words, you'd lose your job. We saw last week in Pergamum, that non-participation in the worship at numerous pagan temples might cost you your life. A fellow by the name of Antipas was martyred there in Pergamum for his non-participation in the worship in pagan temples. In Thyatira, it may not cost your life, but it would most definitely cost you your livelihood. You'd lose your job. And if you were a Jesus follower in Thyatira and you were faced with this choice to faithfully follow Jesus or keep your job, which would you choose? What would you do? Well, what did the Thyatiran believers do in this situation with this dilemma? Well, we read from, or we can understand and extrapolate from our text that it was, it was a mixed bag of sorts. On the positive side of things, Jesus says that many of them were remaining faithful, and he commends them in verse 19. Let's reread that together, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. This is a church on an upward trajectory here. Many in the church in Thyatira were patiently enduring their vocational marginalization. They were known for their loving works born out of their faith. They were remaining active and loving and serving their community and even increasing in their love. The church in Thyatira was commended for what Ephesus wasn't doing, increasing in their love as they went along. The church in Ephesus was was commended for holding on to the truth, holding on tightly to right doctrine, but they were scolded for losing their works of love, the love and compassion that they had at first. The church in Thyatira seems to be the exact opposite. They were commended for their works of love that exceeded what they had at first. But they're about to be confronted for not holding on to the truth. You know, if we were to use some modern day examples or stereotypes, Ephesus could be like your fundamentalistic traditional Baptist church, okay, with squeaky clean doctrinal statements, white papers on everything, but, but whose posture is generally unloving, judgmental, and separated from its community. Thyatira, on the other hand, would be at the opposite side of the spectrum, perhaps like a liberal mainline denomination church, active in their community, lots of social programs that are compassionate, meeting tangible needs, 
but whose warm-heartedness has taken over clear-mindedness. It's so easy to be pulled in one of those two directions, isn't it? It's so easy to hold on to truth at the expense of love and grace or to hold on to love and grace at the expense of truth. But it's very difficult to hold the tension of both. Hold on to both tightly and not let go. But that's what Jesus calls us to. Because the Apostle John who wrote Revelation also wrote a gospel. And at the start of his gospel, he introduces us to Jesus. And he says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Both. Not one or the other. The problem with Thyatira was not their grace-filled love. It was their tolerance. It was their lack of discernment on the truth. They were tolerating what should not have been tolerated. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, it's unlikely that there was actually a lady named Jezebel in the Thyatiran church. Jezebel was a, a horrible figure in the Old Testament, the epitome of evil, evil that nobody in their right mind would name their child after. Jesus, I believe, is simply using her name, Jezebel's name here, as a figurative archetype to describe a specific woman who was a false teacher in the church in Thyatira. Everybody most likely would have known who he was talking about. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was the murderous, power-hungry wife of King Ahab who successfully encouraged Baal worship in ancient Israel, drew the, the people of Israel astray into idolatry. An idolatry, a worship of false gods that was heavily intertwined with, with rampant sexual immorality. Likewise, this Jezebel, Jezebel woman in Thyatira, calling herself a prophetess, claiming to be a spokesperson for God, speaking for God himself, was encouraging Christians to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, why would anybody in the church in Thyatira fall for this? Well, keep in mind their context. The sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols mentioned here are more than likely a direct reference to the guild feasts in Apollo's temple. You know, other places in scripture, food sacrifice to idols is downplayed as not that big of a deal. Paul, Paul says, hey, you're free to eat that, but don't let the exercise of your freedom call somebody, cause somebody to stumble back into the sin of idolatry. Those, that was meat sold in the marketplace. But here, it's a, it's a big deal. So this must be in reference to the worship feasts within the pagan temples. Eating meat sacrificed to idols is part of a worship experience in that temple. This Jezebel woman was likely teaching something like this. You can worship Jesus and you can go to the guild feasts so that you can keep your jobs. God wants you to be prosperous, doesn't he? So he wouldn't really hold it against you if you're eating the food offered to Apollo at a guild feast. Meat is meat. The spiritual is everything. The physical is nothing. So what you take into your body and do with your body is no big deal to God. Go ahead. Join the feast. Loosen up. Party it up. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. If you have a desire there, follow it. I'm doing it. 
Don't be so regressive. Look at me. I've been sexually liberated. I'm doing great. God's blessing me. I'm making good money. Go ahead. Wouldn't that be a tempting message? It was also, um, I mean, it was so tempting that the church in Thyatira was tolerating this Jezebel's teachings. They were holding on to love, but letting go of truth. Their soft hearts were leading to soft minds, and their soft minds were leading them down a path of idolatrous compromise. They were tolerating self-destructive behaviors that God himself was intolerant of. And Jesus is about to lay the hammer down. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. You know, this this is not a reference of, of God killing children here. Children is figurative speech for those who have accepted and are now practicing Jezebel's false spiritual teachings. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Man, this is certainly some tough love from Jesus, isn't it? You know, it's very easy, especially in our culture, to emphasize the love of God and de-emphasize the fear of God. You know, not too long ago, the opposite was true, to emphasize the fear of God and de-emphasize the love of God. But passages like this remind us that we need a good dose of both. Jesus announces here that he's prepared to take people out. Strike people dead who are profaning his name by calling what is evil good and participating in sexual immorality. There's a lot of lists of things that God is not tolerant of throughout the scripture. You know, in each of those lists is some form of sexual immorality, sometimes mentioned more than once. But even this tough love from Jesus shows his patience. We don't know how he did it, but evidently Jesus had already warned this Jezebel woman and given her time to repent of her false teaching, her sexual immorality, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, likely a reference here to the teaching of this woman called Jezebel, Jezebel, to you I say, do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Earlier, he, he, in verse 21, he said, I gave her time to repent, but she refused. But for the rest of you, <laughs> the rest of you who, who are holding on to truth, hold fast to my love, but also hold on to my truth until I come. I don't have any other burden I want to lay on you. Hold on to both. You know, it's been about 2,000 years, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. He told the Thyatiran church, hold on until I come. Well, I think the message is just applicable today to Fellowship Nashville Church in November of 2022. Or is it still October? still October, not quite November. Hold fast until I come. What are we to hold fast to? We're hold fast to his truth and his love. So what's the, the... So what for us today? What's the applicational message for us as 21st century listeners? 
Fellowship Nashville, you are a very loving church. People that engage with us often comment on how welcoming we are, how loving we are as a body. And I am so proud of that. That's great. I'm so proud of you as your pastor. We need to keep that up. Thyatira was commended for that. And if Jesus were, write, would, were to write a letter to us specifically, I think he would commend us for that too. But here's the applicational question for us. In our desire to be a loving church, where might we be tempted to give unqualified, unconditional affirmation to things that God does not affirm? In our desire to be a loving church, where might we be tempted to give unqualified, unconditional affirmation to things that God does not affirm? I doubt that we are going to be tempted to give in to Apollo worship in a pagan temple. But may I suggest to you that our main temptation may be in the very same compromise, the same category of compromise that went along with Apollo worship and Thyatira, and that's sexual immorality. You know, we live in a sexualized society that's tolerant of all kinds of things that God calls or puts off limits and calls sexually immoral. You know, pornography is rampant in our digital age. Sexual immorality is embedded in almost all of our entertainment to the extent that we have largely become desensitized to it. The media in our culture has worked hard in the past few decades to normalize any and all forms of sexual expression outside of the God-ordained context of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. You know, it's quite interesting how culture shifts and what it's tolerant of. I recently heard Kevin DeYoung make the observation that 60 to 70 years ago in American culture, we were quite, la quite laissez-faire about our food, but we had very strict mores around sex. But we've now reversed the two. We're, we're quite laissez-faire about sex, but we have very, very many rules about food, right? I mean, we've got to read all the labels now before we, read, read, before we eat anything, We've got to make sure that it's organic, non-GMO, low in saturated fat, gluten-free, cage-free, the chicken was read poetry. You know, it's <laughs> all these other things before we eat it. And this is really an exaggeration in many parent groups who'd receive more nasty looks and judgments for feeding, judgment for, for feeding your kids lucky charms than you would announcing that you were going to go, uh, that you were leaving your spouse to have an affair. Oh, really? Tell me more about why you're leaving. Lucky what? You know, it's mores shift. Tolerance changes. But God's word remains stable. It doesn't change with the latest fad of culture, with the winds of, of what's acceptable by the majority. God created sex. It's a beautiful, good thing. It was his idea. <laughs> but he created it to be used exclusively within the context of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. It's a wonderful thing in that context. But sexual expression outside of that context will bring damage to your soul and to your life. That's why God puts limits around it for our good. A chainsaw is a wonderful thing, 
in the right context, out in the forest cutting down trees. But if you're using it to floss, it will really mess your life up. You know, I have, don't have a lot of time this morning to dive deeply into this. But I do want to point you to a fantastic resource that was written by a friend of mine named Preston Sprinkle. Grace Truth 1.0 and 2.0. The subtitle of the first one is Five Conversations Every Thoughtful Christian Should Have About Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. 2.0 is Five More Conversations Every Christian Should Have About Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. You know, when we run up against tolerance in our culture around sex and any and all expressions of sexuality, how do we approach the conversation with grace and truth without letting go of either? You know, historically in the American church, particularly with the LGBT plus community, like Ephesus, the church has held on to truth, but with a posture of very little love and grace. We need to repent of that. Because it's not be a posture like that is not being faithful to the truth. But now the pendulum is swinging toward approaching this area like the church in Thyatira, with tolerance and grace, but devoid of truth, which really isn't biblically faithful love. To be faithful, we must, like Jesus, hold on to both grace and truth. So I commend that resource to you. If you're in a city group, a small group, even if you want to read it together as a family, it's a great resource for getting godly wisdom, text-based wisdom on this topic. Also, um, the the website was up there, centerforfaith.com. When you visit that, click on store. And that will take you to where you can buy this. Don't buy the DVDs, okay? Um, that is, those same videos are available on, their, on um, Right Now Media. We have an account as a church, and we can sh- give you a um, login for that to just view those videos that go along with each, chap- each of the 10 chapters in those books. So just reach out to us if you decide to go through that resource, okay? And we'll give you the link to the videos that, that correspond, which are great, well-produced videos. All right, moving on. To be faithful, we must be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Our time is short, so let's wrap up by quickly looking at the words of encouragement from Jesus at the end of this letter, starting with verse 26. The one who, to the one who conquers, I'm sorry, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Again, we see Jesus using imagery here from common products of the industrial complex in Thyatira. Rods of iron, earthen pots. And just think how encouraging these words from Jesus would have been to believers in Thyatira who had just lost their industrial job. I'm going to give you a rod of iron <laughs> You'll rule with me as when pots are broken into shards. I'm going to rule over the nations. You're powerless now. You're having a hard time scraping by, making ends meet. You feel like the world's against you, like you have no power. But I am coming in my kingdom, and you're going to rule and reign with me if you stay faithful. Think of how encouraging that would have been. But that's not the only thing he says to them. Verse 28, and... 
And here's the best part. Jesus saves the best till last. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hold on, if you persevere, holding on to both love and truth, you will get the morning star. And you're looking at me with blank faces like, what's the morning star? Well, let's figure it out. And this is a, this is a case where we've got to let the text interpret the text. Because in the same book of Revelation, several chapters later, it becomes very clear. Revelation 22, verse 16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. Jesus himself is the morning star. So he's saying to the church in Thyatira, if you hold on, if you don't compromise on the truth, if you persevere, yes, you'll likely lose your job, but you'll get me. You'll get me. And that's a good trade. You might lose your trade, but it's a good trade because you get me. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, would you rather have your job or Jesus? Would you rather have the approval of culture or Jesus? Would you rather have sexual liberation free from all moral constraints, liberation in quotes, or Jesus? Whatever your choice is besides Jesus, it may make your life easier, but Jesus promises life that truly is life. It may give you temporary relief, but Jesus promises eternal rest. It may give you momentary satisfaction, but Jesus promises you eternal joy and life. Which will you choose? I don't know about you, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Pray with me. Fathers, we sing this song to close our service. May we sing these words from our hearts. Give me Jesus. May Jesus be more important to us than anything. Our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to seek satisfaction and security and significance in things other than you. That's how idolatry always works. It's always how it's always worked. Satan is so good at crafting counterfeits to what we really need, and that's Jesus. Every sin in our lives can be traced to seeking satisfaction, security, and significance in something other than you, Jesus. So, dear God, help us. Help us to hold fast to what is true to hold fast to what is full of grace and love and to let go of neither. We desire to be faithful. The faithful presence of love right where you've placed us for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those who are looking for love in all the wrong places. Use us, Lord. That's our prayer. Amen. Amen.